and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in front of you. Or you can also open up your smartphone or tablet to the YouVersion Bible app and follow along there as well. There's the scriptures and also some notes in there for you as well. 1 Samuel chapter 5 today, we're actually going to travel through uh, two chapters. Uh, you're like, that's never happened in the history of Cody preaching. Um, it's, it's something new. We're going we're gonna to do two chapters today. 1 Samuel 5 and 6 is where we're going to be today. Did you know that part of human design is that we are worshipers? Part of human design. It's just the way that you've been made. It's the way that you've been created. And this isn't just true of Christians, but it's true of everybody. People are designed as worshipers. Worship is an automatic spiritual process, just like breathing is an automatic physical process. You don't, you don't think about breathing. You don't um, uh, attempt to breathe. I mean, sometimes you're thinking about your breathing, but it just happens. It's an automatic physical process. You, uh, you don't get to stop it. You don't get to start it. It just goes. The same thing is true with worship. It's an automatic spiritual process. It's something that happens within you at all times. You don't get to choose if you breathe. You just get to choose the atmosphere that you breathe in, right? That, that's all you get the choice of. And the, the same thing is true spiritually. You don't get to choose if you worship. You just get to choose where it goes. You get to decide where the worship goes. The only right choice for your breath is oxygen, right? If you try to choose to breathe other things, you try to choose to breathe carbon dioxide or uh, mono, uh, dihydrogen monoxide. That sounds really smart, but that's just water. Um, you try to breathe those things, you're going to have problems, Right? You're going to have problems uh, all the way up to and including death. If you're trying to breathe carbon dioxide, you try to breathe, wa breathe water, that is a bad atmosphere for you to breathe in. The same is true for worship, that the only right choice for worship is the God of the Bible. I can't just say God because people associate that with lots of things. The God of the Bible, that's the only place where right worship goes. Anything else besides or alongside the God of the Bible brings problems into our lives up to and including eternal death. That's a, that's a big, big issue. But maybe you say, I'm an atheist. I, I don't really worship anything. The, the very simple truth, if I can just say it this way, is that even those who are atheists and say they, they don't worship anything, they're actually just worshiping themselves. That's, that's all they've just traded the idea of God out there for a God in here. That's all they've really done. And so we all worship. Every single one of us. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter our upbringing. It doesn't matter if we even think we're worshiping or not. We're worshipers. That's just the way we've been created. And part of the issue with this is that the uh, human heart is actually an idol factory. Have you found that to be true about yourself? You create idols. That's, that's what your heart does. It just, the fallen human heart is perpetually creating something to worship. We tend to exalt someone or something or some ideal too highly, and we give it or them the worship that only belongs to God. This is what we tend to do. And when we choose our idol above God or we reduce God to the level of an idol, it has very expensive consequences. And that's what we're looking at in uh, 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6 together. Here's our big idea as we look at this together. It's this, that God's glory does not depend on you so you can either participate in his glory or speculate his glory. You either get to be a part of it 
or just watch it happen. But God's glory is going to happen regardless of us. It doesn't depend on us. We have the opportunity to participate in it or not. So we're going to look at this uh, section of two chapters today in three parts. The first part is chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, which is all of chapter 5, God's judgment. The second part, chapter 6, 1 through 11, man's plans. And then chapter 6, 12 through 21, God's direction. Let's pray. And then uh, we'll jump into this together this morning. Father, we thank you for today, God. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for the chance to study it together. And we pray that this would be far more than an academic exercise. God, we don't want to just go through the religious motions of doing some religious thing for the sake of making ourselves feel better or checking off the box that we did something for you. God, we want to know you, but we want to be transformed more into your image. We want to be made more like you. We want to dive deeper into relationship with you. We want you to affect real, authentic transformation within us. And we know that that's something we can't just will ourselves into. We need you to accomplish it for us. So God, we submit ourselves to you afresh and anew this morning, asking for, expecting your presence to be here in power and in authority, and that your glory would be our highest goal. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the opening chapters of 1 Samuel that we've gone through are, are, are all set during the time of the book of Judges, right? So, so when you're thinking of this time, think of the time of the book of Judges. And so actually we see that Samuel, uh, uh, in chapter 7, next week, that he begins to be the judge over uh, over Israel, this last and final judge. Now in this, one of the things that's really important to note about the times of the judges is what the book of Judges says about this time. And it ends with this, this, uh, this phrase or this thought in uh, chapter 21, verse 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right according to themselves. They were their own standard. They did what was right uh, according to what they felt was right and appropriate. And that sounds very much like our day today. Everyone sets their own standards of what they think is right and wrong. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And I just kind of decide whatever I think is right. And I, I do that. I do what's right. In my own eyes. That's the way that things were in the times of the book of Judges. In the times of the book of Judges, chaos ensued all the time. And that's what we see playing out also in the opening chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. We saw it last week in chapter 4 that the spiritual and political leaders reduce, reduce God to a mythical legendary relic, this magic box that they take into battle for them to use for their purposes. I, I have the box, I do, I, I do what I want with it, and then God is obligated to now bless me. That was their thought process. They did what was right in their own eyes. That's not at all. God wasn't the box, and God wasn't obligated to bless them. You see, they confused the representation of God's presence with the actual presence of God. And if we're not careful, we will do the same thing. They turn the box into an idol. And so this week, as we look at chapters 5 and 6, we'll see that this mentality continues to be prevalent, not only with the, the people of Israel, but also with the Philistines as well. So let's look at this first section. In uh, verses 1 through 12, or all of chapter 5, uh, God's judgment. That's our first piece as we look together today. It says this in verse 1, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. 
When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. And the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come uh, into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. All right, so this city, Ashdod, it's one of uh, five major cities in the Philistine uh, territory. There are these, the Philistines are like these uh, bands of raiders, if you kind of think of it that way. They have major cities, and uh, these five major cities each have a guy that rules over them, sort of like a king, and they come together with these lords uh, of the Philistines to sort of have this confederation that they make up. And the five cities we'll get to in chapter six, they're all named for you in verse 17. Now, the ark was their, their thing that they captured. They capture the ark of God by be, defeating the Israelites, and they take it as the spoils of victory, and they put it in their temple to their God. This, their God is Dagon. And so they take the ark and they put it in there, and what this does is it symbolizes that Dagon is stronger is better than, is greater than, is above Yahweh. That, that's what this symbolizes. That the Israelite God is smaller than our amazing God, Dagon. That, that's what they're doing there. Now, Dagon, uh, their God, is uh, he's like half man, half fish. Uh, he's Ariel's dad. I, I've got four daughters, and uh, so I go to Disney movies. Um, but that's who, that, that's Dagon. Dagon is Ariel's dad. And so he's, you know, this guy that's really highly exalted in the, uh, the Philistine pantheon. He's actually the highest God that they have. He's the God over like grain and produce, things like that. He's actually the, the other God that's prevalent through the Bible, Baal or Baal, however you want to say it. He, Dagon is his dad. Um, so he's like the highest God in the pagan Philistine pantheon. And so they've got him exalted up there. And so the, here's essentially what takes place. They take the ark and they put it in, next to Dagon to, submit, uh, to symbolize Dagon's bigger. Here's what's happened. Israel's ungodliness has caused the pagan nations around them, the unbelievers near them, to think false things about God. That's what's taking place. And don't you see how clearly that can happen with our lives as well? That if we don't live lives of faith, if we don't actually live after the things of the Lord, then our ungodly lives can scream a testimony to the world around us the wrong things about God. They'll believe things about God that are absolutely false. And that's what happens here. They think that their fish guy is bigger than the Lord. And they have this powerful testimony that has come from the nation of Israel. And so they put, uh, they put the, the, uh, uh, the ark in there. And then God, you know what happens the first morning uh, in verse 3? Uh, the people wake up early in the morning and they go in there and they find out Dagon is fallen on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's like, it's like the Dagon is worshiping before the ark of God. It's this, it's this really strong symbol. He's laying on his faith, face all prostrate before uh, the ark of the Lord. And I, and I think when I read this, I see God's humor. I, I mean, 
I, I see sarcasm. That's what I read in this. God is making fun of fish guy and saying, look, he's just, he's just laying down in front. I mean, if he's so strong, why doesn't he just stand back up? But he can't. He's just going to lay there because he's an idol. He, he's, he's got hands, but he can't do push-ups. He's got a, he's got a mouth, but he can't say anything. Uh, and, and like Psalm 115, I believe it is, talks about that idea that, that he's just this thing made of people's hands. So I see sarcasm a lot like in 1 Kings when uh, Elijah is calling down fire, 1 Kings 18, and he's making fun of, I think it's, it was Baal, it was Baal at that time, and he's saying, hey, maybe, you know, the priests of Baal, he goes, hey, maybe your God is taking a nap. You guys should cry louder. Oh, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's got to go potty. You know, basically, that's, that's my translation, my little paraphrase. Maybe he's in the, maybe he's, dis, you know, he's distracted by going to the bathroom. And like, you know, Elijah's literally making fun of them in a very sarcastic way. And that's what I see God doing in this moment. He's saying, listen, your God's not real. And he's using sarcasm to get their attention, but they just, they don't see it. And so what happens? Well, they don't get it. So the next morning God says, okay, I'm going to cut your God's head off and his hands. I'm going to cut his hands and his head off. And, and so wh what's that all about? Why, why does God do that? Well, it's, it's not just that it fell over and parts broke off, but certain parts have broken off. And this is because culturally, this is what they would have done to their enemies, this is how they treat their enemies. When they would go in and they would, they would conquer a people, uh, they would take the ruler and they would cut his head off many times. And the reason they did that is because doing that is not just that he's dead, but it's a total destruction. It's, it's that you are being totally dominated. It's like at the end of 1 Samuel when Saul dies. That's what they do to his body. They cut his head off and they put his body up on a wall as a trophy. And it's a symbolization of total domination, total destruction. The hands, it's, it's to symbolize being completely powerless. You can't fight back. You can't even hold a sword to fight back. You're unable. It's as if you're dead. And so here God is clearly speaking to them in a way that they can understand. That, that he's saying, guys, listen, you're God is dead. And if, if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to cut his head off. I'm going to cut his hands off. Your God has no power. Your God has no ability. Your God is not greater than me. I, I have, I, I'm not in the box. I, I'm not submitted to the box. He's speaking to them in a way that they can understand, but they think he's against them. He think, they think he's against them, and, but the truth is, the fact is that all of this is for their benefit. God is moving on their behalf for their benefit. And so, but what do they do? Verse five, it says that they, uh, none of the priests touch the threshold because they think the threshold is the thing that has all the power. Oh, well, when Dagon fell over, he hit the threshold and all his parts popped off. So maybe that, we're, we walked on the threshold. We, we somehow, we've offended Dagon. That's why this happened. No, no, that's, that's not what's going on. You see, here's the thing. Many spiritual people ignore repentance and institute a ritual instead. That's what, that's what spiritual, quote, spiritual people tend to do. God was trying to get their attention to get them to abandon their, their idol. God is looking to lead them into relationship, lead them into repentance, but they're so worried about keeping their idol, keeping their sin, keeping their false God, that instead of repenting, instead of recognizing their sinfulness and abandoning it and turning toward the Lord, they say, you know what we need? We need a ritual. We can't step on this part because that part's super holy, and so that's why Dagon is so mad at us. 
What a, what a tragedy. What a tragedy as God's trying to get their attention. Well, verse 6 says this, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and uh, struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Uh, and when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh toward uh, us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to them the Philistines, uh, to them all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of God of Israel be carried away to Gath. That's another city. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. And so it was after uh, they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was great against this, uh, the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out saying, they have brought us the ark of God uh, of Israel to, to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the city, uh, the cry of the city went up to heaven. And so the, the events of chapter 5, they're unfolding here. And we tend to maybe think of this being like maybe a week of time. It's, it's like, hey guys, this, this was terrible. Let's send it to another city. And then they said, it's like maybe a, a week because we've got a couple of days happening in the very beginning. But chapter 6 verse 1 tells us that this is actually seven months of time. Okay, so this isn't just a couple of days. This is seven months of time, not just a week. And, and not only do we see in, in, in the opening part of this that Dagon's hands were cut off, but we also see there in verse, uh, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. As much as Dagon was powerless, God was powerful. As, as much as Dagon could do nothing to save them, God was bringing them to the end of themselves. His hand was heavy upon them to show them that their false God could do nothing, but he was at work. Now, the idea here of verse 6 of tumors, it carries two potential translations. Both of them have been argued by people way smarter than me, and so I have no idea which one this is, other than to say there's two different theories. One of them is the bubonic plague, and the reason that people think of this is because later on we're given more detail in chapter 6 that it has to do with rats as well, so they think rats came in and they've spread bubonic plague throughout the people. The other thing is the idea that tumors could also mean hemorrhoids. I don't really need to explain that too much other than to say that would suck. Um, and so whatever it is, it's just not fun. I mean, hemorrhoids so bad that you die from them doesn't sound like a great day. Uh, and so they're, you know, here they are uh, trying to, to figure all of this out. David Guzik says this, friends, if there's any theme that we've been learning as we go through 1 Samuel, we've seen this theme many times before, that if you won't listen to God when he is first speaking to you, God will find, let's just say, a more creative way to speak to you. God is trying to get their attention and they are simply not listening. 
your God isn't real. Your God is fake. And so they prop their God back up. And then let me pop the parts of your God off so you get the idea. And what do they, what do, they do? Well, we're not really told, but it seems like they glued him back together and stood him up there again. And, uh, you know, they're continuing to worship their God. And so God's hand comes heavily upon these cities and they experience the judgment of God against their sinfulness. They refuse to repent. Therefore, all that's left is God's judgment against their sin. And so it comes upon Ashdod. God's hand is heavy there. And they go, man, this is terrible. What should we do? I know, let's send it to our friends. And so they, they say, look, Gath, you guys can take it for a little while. And then they're like, this was terrible. Uh, let's get rid of it. And they send it to another city. And, uh, and as they're doing this, it seems a bit ridiculous. And you're like, I don't need those kind of friends. Maybe you think you have some of those kinds of friends. Um, but what's happening here is they're actually, it's kind of like this uh, trial to say, is this, is this coincidence? I mean, this golden box showed up and we're having a really bad day. These hemorrhoids are terrible. Uh, let's send the box away. And uh, the next city has that happen. And then the, finally, by the time it's coming to the third city, they're like, this is insane. I don't want this thing. We got to get rid of this. You see, here's the thing. The point of the pain was to get them to see the greatness of God, the foolishness of their sin and their need for repentance. That was the point of the pain. How often does God use pain in our lives in the same way? He brings things into our lives. He allows things to come into our lives to show us his greatness. I've put my faith foolishly in something. I've put my faith foolishly in some person. And God brings pain into my life, so I stop looking at that and I see him and his greatness. I see my own foolishness. Why did I think that I could trust in that instead of him? And I see that he is the one who is to be exalted and I need to abandon myself and return to him. But the thing is that that only works if you're willing to allow the Lord to lead you. And so in verses 11 and 12, after they share the plague, they decide that their trophy of victory isn't worth the trouble any longer. They're trying to figure out how to keep the trophy and keep their glory. And, uh, and God's saying, I'm not going to share my glory. You can't have it. That's just not what I, what I want to do. And so they say, let's figure out how to give it back. So that's second part uh, we're looking at today, not only God's judgment, but man's plans. Chapter six, verses one through 11. Chapter six, verse one says this. Now, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send, it away, send away the ark of God to Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand was not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall receive uh, return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors, and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and your lords. Therefore, you shall make the images of your tumors and the images of your rats that the ravaged, uh, that ravaged the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your land. So here they've been living under the heavy hand of God, for seven months. I mean, imagine how long that is. That's a very long time to be living under this kind of, of, of heavy hand of God, this, this uh, uh, pressure coming down from heaven upon their souls. And then they decide to just get rid of God's presence, and that's going to solve the problem. 
The problem isn't my sin, the problem is God's around. And so what I gotta do is I've gotta get rid of all of the, all the trinkets and things that remind me of God. I gotta get rid of the stuff that, that is, has anything to do with God in my life and, and that's gonna solve my problem. Let me just ask you, do you think that's gonna solve their problem? Do you think that's somehow going to cause them to, to be able to be enlightened? Do you think that somehow God removing his hand from them of, of conviction is somehow going to be a good thing for them? They might feel better, but it's not better. But that's what they're looking for. That's what they're going for. You see, God's hand against your sin will probably feel bad, but it's not bad. It's actually a gracious gift of God. Avoiding conviction doesn't solve the issue. Repentance does. Repentance is the only way to solve the issue, not avoiding conviction. Here's how Romans chapter 1 verse 26 says it. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged the natural relations for those uh, that are contrary to nature. Uh, we studied through Romans uh, uh, together. We just finished that up uh, the end of last year. And in Romans 1, we went through this idea. And here's the thing that's being stated to us here, that God gave them up. Here's the truth. It is possible to resist God's leading to the point to where he gives you over to your desires. That God stops bringing conviction upon your heart. People who say, well, I just, you know, I do whatever. I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel convicted about that. That is not a good thing. That's not an excuse to say, now God has all of a sudden said that this thing he previously said was evil. Now it's good because I have this lack of feeling bad about it. That's not, that's not a good thing. That is actually God's judgment upon you in a different way. And I would argue that's the worst kind of judgment. When you no longer feel conviction about your sin, that is the worst kind of judgment. Because let me ask you this, how are you gonna to come to the end of yourself and come to repentance if you don't sense God's presence heavy upon you for your sin? You're never going to. You're gonna go deeper into sin. That sin is gonna turn into worse sin and you will end up in places you never dreamed possible because you don't experience the convicting hand of God on your life. This is, we need God to convict us. God, convict me more. God, convict me faster. God, help me to, to abandon my sin more quickly and not hold on to it and wrestle over it and think that I'm losing something when in fact, all I'm doing is gaining things uh, from you. They wanna be sure to appease God, and so they get their spiritual wise guys together, and they say, what do we need to do? And they say, well, you need to not just send the ark back, but you have to give what they call a trespass offering. Now, there is a trespass offering in scripture. Golden rats and tumors is not it, okay? I'll just give you, you can look it up in Leviticus if you'd like to, uh, but this is not the trespass offering. But here's something that's interesting about this phrasing, trespass offering. What, what is trespassing? You've probably seen a sign that says no trespassing. Uh, and if you were a bad teenager like me, then you ignored it and did whatever you wanted. And the, the idea of trespassing is that you are not allowed on that property. And that's what the sign is telling you. And as soon as you decide to do it, you go on the property, you are willfully disregarding that sign. That, that's the idea. So trespassing is willful sin. 
It's you know it's wrong and you do it on purpose. That's what a trespass is. The, the idea of sin, the biblical idea of sin is actually a different concept. It's an archery term uh, that is, uh, is used uh, for not hitting the exact bullseye. Now, when I'm shooting archery, or I don't really shoot archery that much, or I'm shooting my guns, I'm shooting for the bullseye, right? And uh, I want to hit the bullseye. I'm trying to hit the bullseye. And when I don't, that's a sin. That's what a lot of sin is in our lives. We're trying to aim for the good things of the Lord, and we miss. Trespass is not that. Trespass isn't trying. Trespass is knowing it's wrong and doing it anyway. That's what a trespass is. And so these guys say, we got to offer a trespass offering. This is an admission of guilt by these guys. They, they have realized we've done something wrong against the God of Israel, and we've got to figure out how to appease him uh, because we're in the wrong. That's what they've understood. That's what God's heavy hand of conviction has brought in, into their minds. But here's the thing. Admitting guilt, trying to appease God, but still remaining in sin and idolatry is not repentance. They are hoping that they can give God this gold and they can still have their false gods. That's what they're hoping they can do. God, you'll take away all the mean things you're doing and we can still have our idolatry and we can appease you. You see, you've got to abandon your sin. That's what's required. That's what is required for repentance. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could say, God made me the way that I am. He's got to just accept me and all my sinfulness. He's got to make room for my sin now in his plan. That is not true. That is not Christianity. The truth is, Jesus' death was to pay for that sin so that he could then transform you into what is holy. He could change you. He could change your desires and he could make you more like himself. Many want God's heavy hand removed They want his blessing given, but they also want to have their sin. And God just doesn't play that game. He doesn't. It doesn't matter how much gold they give God. They can't buy him off to get their sin and and to to get his blessing as well. Notice verse 5, they say, perhaps God will remove his hand from us. Uh, This is all a guess, and they're hoping that it's going to work. And so they devise a plan. Verse 6 says this, why then... Do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the, uh, they, did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, therefore, make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you uh, are returning to him as a trespass offering in the chest by its side and send it away and let it go and watch to see if it goes up the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then uh, he, uh, then he has done, then he has done this, uh, done, excuse me, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so. They took the two, two milk cows, hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. And when they set the ark of the, uh, and they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the rats and the images of their tumors. And all right, so they get this plan to get rid of the ark, but they do it in such a way that they can also avoid the humility of admitting that they have been defeated by the Lord uh, and possibly provoking God to further judgment. Now, verse six, they understood enough to know that Pharaoh and Egypt's issue was hardness of heart, but they don't understand it well enough to know that that's their same issue, right? You guys are hardening your heart against the things of the Lord. 
that's why this judgment has come upon you. God is trying to get you to abandon your idol and come to him. God is reaching out to this pagan people who want nothing to do with him. He's trying to get their attention and bring them into relationship to him, but they, they didn't want anything to do with it, so they hardened their heart. And just like Pharaoh could have avoided all the plagues through his submission, so too they could avoid so much damage through their submission to the Lord as well. And so they figure out a plan. They're like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get some cows. But we're going to get milk cows. And the reason they choose milk cows is because milk cows aren't used to pull things. Okay, so they've never been yoked. Uh, if you know anything about animals that, uh, th- that don't normally pull things, if you put a yoke on them, they're going to just stand there. They're not going to do anything. They're confused about it. I don't know what this is. I don't know what you want from me. They'll just stand there. They're not going to pull anything. All right, so not only are that, but they're also milk cows with calves. Uh, and so this is part of the nature of this cow. I don't, if you've ever worked with cattle, you try to separate a calf from a cow, a milk cow, you're going to have big problems. It's like, you, you've heard the phrase mama bear. Mama cow is the same concept, right? They're, they just are not excited about taking away their babies. And so they do this and uh, they put all this stuff on there and they're like, hey, listen, if the cows go where they're supposed to go, then we will know that this is, is God. It'll be absolutely miraculous if the cows move at all, let alone go where they're supposed to go. Now notice verse nine, one of the things that they say about God, they say, uh, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done the, us this great evil. The, the, the idea that they have about God is that he is acting toward them in this harsh, overly judgmental, evil way. You ever thought that about God? You ever felt that about God? You ever had people say that about God to you? God is doing something evil to our lives. God is doing something evil in our land. You see, instead of seeing it as a consequence for their sinfulness, they've got to say that God's bad. That's the only way that this works. If you refuse to admit fault of your own sin, if you refuse to take responsibility for your own sin, the only thing that's left is to blame God. It's what, it's what Adam did in the garden, didn't he? When uh, God shows up and he says, hey, Adam, where are you? And Adam comes out and he says, um, I mean, I'm here. And God goes, why, why are you wearing some clothes there, Adam? Why have you covered yourself? And he goes, well, uh, and God says, did you eat the fruit that I, I told you not to eat? And Adam goes, well, it was the woman that you gave me, right? He blamed her and blamed God. It's, your, it's not my fault that I sinned. It's hers. It's actually, God, you gave me, it's your fault. You gave me the woman. You're the one that's really at fault. This is what's bound up within the heart of humanity. We blame God. But here's the thing. God is not capable of evil. God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. There's no capability of evil in him whatsoever. Here's how James says it in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. It says this, So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from the Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Here's the way that that's being described. God is light. That's a concept that's throughout the the scriptures. God is perfect and pure light. That's one of the details that James gives us. There's not even a a shadow or shifting turning within God. He's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely holy. There's not a hint of evil within God whatsoever. And if you're willing to see it, the pain that God brings into our lives is actually a tremendous gift of grace. Because it's what he uses to get us to repent. 
It's what he uses to get us to the end of ourselves. That's what God is doing with them, to abandon self and to depend on him. And so they decide they don't want to do that. They just want to try to buy God off and give the, give the box back. And so that's what their plan is. Here's where God's direction comes into all, all of it. Not only God's judgment and man's plans, but also God's direction, verses 12 through 21 uh, of chapter 6. Verse 12 says this, um, Then the cows headed straight for the road of Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat uh, their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the, uh, then the cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites uh, took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, uh, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel uh, on which the Lord, uh, they set the ark of the Lord, which, is the stone, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. So astonishingly here, in the first part of this, verse 12, the cows actually go against their instincts. They pull the cart and they go all the way on the road the right direction. They, hate, they head straight for Israel. God is leading these cows. How in the world are these cows going to perform this feat? It's absolutely miraculous. It's not possible for them to do so, and yet they do so. They, they, that God was able to do with these cows what, Be, uh, what uh, what's his name, Dagon, was never able to do uh, for the people of the Philistines. And so they head straight there. Now Beth Shemesh uh, in verse 12, it's not only a city in Israel, but it's also a city that's dedicated to the Levites. Now in the book of Joshua in uh, chapter 21 verse 16 is where we find Beth Shemesh listed. But essentially when the people came in and took the land, they divided the land up and the Levites never took a portion of the land. They, their portion was the Lord. But all throughout the, the, uh, the nation, they would be given certain cities. Beth Shemesh was one of the cities that the Levites were given. Now, why does that matter? Well, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, those are the ones who are the people who care for the temple of God, who care for uh, all the articles of the Lord, who are there to run the, the worship services at the temple and at the tabernacle. That's what they're there to do, that God had provided them for that. They're the very ones charged with caring for the tabernacle and the ark. Warren Wearsby says this in his commentary, Be Successful, God had done what Dagon could never do. He got into the cows, he kept their attention on the right road, overcame their desire to go to their calves, and brought them to precisely the city of Beth Shemesh. His providence rules over all. Now, when the ark shows up in verse 13, what, we see, what do we see happen? The people erupt in this spontaneous 
worship service. I mean, think of it. The last seven months have been lived under this cloud of defeat. They've had so many of their, their fellow people die in, in a battle to the Philistines. The Philistines take over. They defeat them. Their high priest has died. Uh, his two sons have died. And, and, and the ark is gone. They've lived under this cloud of verse 22 of chapter 4. The glory of God has de departed. It's been a, a very terrible season for them for these last seven months. And then, out of nowhere, these cows randomly show up with the ark. I'm sure they are so excited. This rejoicing explodes because the ark has returned. The ark has finally come back. And so the five lords follow the ark of God and they want to do this for two reasons. One, they want to be sure it gets there. And also, number two, if it doesn't go where it's supposed to go, man, I'm getting that gold back, right? Like that's, that's probably what I'm thinking if I'm one of these guys. And so it all gets there. So they head back home. That's what we see happening in verses 16 through 18. It all gets figured out and heads back home. Now, this chapter would be great if it ended right here. This would be so awesome. God's glory is revealed. God, God works in this supernatural way to reach the lost. They harden their hearts. They won't repent. And so God brings the ark back to Israel and the people rejoice and they start worshiping him. What a great end to the chapter. But wait, there's more. All right, so let's look at verse 19 and see what it, what it says. It says this, Then he, God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, who's able to stand before the, this holy Lord, God? And, whom, uh, and to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. You see, all seems to be going well. And then the emotion of the moment overrides the truth of God's word. They're caught up in the emotion. They're caught up in that moment of, of this is so amazing, this is so great, and they know what God's word says. They, they, God's word says no one's even supposed to look at the ark itself. They're actually supposed to cover it with like a, a veil, a covering, as they travel with it. And so the Levites knew enough to, that, that they had to be the ones to take it off the cart, so they do so. But then, then someone gets curious. Someone is caught up in the emotion and they decide to look inside. And enough people look inside to where you see there in verse 19, 50,070 men die for doing this. Now, there's some discrepancy over that number. Is it the right number or not? It doesn't matter. Here's what matters. People did what was wrong because of their emotion. They were emotionally stirred and they violated God's word. They didn't do what they knew God had said. And here's what's crazy about it. The Levites are the ones who are charged with knowing God's word. This is a Levitical city. These are the people who should have known. These are the ones who had given the charge of caring for God's people and teaching God's word. And instead, their emotional mismanagement leads them into foolishness. So too it is with us. Far too often, our emotional mismanagement leads us into foolish things. It's things that we should never step into. It's places we should never go. And yet because an emotion overcomes us, a thing floats into our hearts or minds, we fail to manage that emotion properly and it leads us into, into folly. You see, 
the holy things of God had become common. They devalued and disrespected the Lord. And what happened was they endured the judgment of God against them as well. It's a really, really bad day when the spiritual leaders are avoiding the presence of God because they don't like the consequences of their sin. That's what's happening in verses 20 and 21. They, they sinned by looking in the box and encouraging others to do so, and a bunch of people die, and instead of owning their sin and repenting, they say, oh, you know what? We, just, we need to do what the Philistines did. We need to avoid God's presence. God's scary. God's too crazy. God wants too much from me. I need to get him out of my life. I can't submit my life to him. I can't give my all to him. I'm afraid of what's going on. You see, they didn't like the consequences of their sins, so they avoid the presence of God. What a tragic, tragic thing that's happening here. Now, in all of this, what we see is that both the Israelites and the Philistines were caught up in idolatry. The Philistines were worshiping their god Dagon, and Israel hadn't repented of their idol worship of the box. They still thought the box was the thing. They'd forgotten that it represented God's presence and they worshiped the box instead. And we have a tendency to think that they are the ones who have idol problems. But let me just tell you, we have idol problems as well. We struggle with idolatry here today. And so I want to conclude with using the acronym IDOLS uh, to help you identify your idols. Now, I've, I've shared this with you before. And so for some of you, you're gonna, this is going to be familiar. You're going to see this and you're going to know what this is. But let me caution you, you may have created a different idol since then. It's very possible. The human heart's an idol factory, man. We will make more of these things. And so I want to encourage you to use this as a way to maybe identify uh, some of your idols. Um, I stole this uh, from Mark Driscoll because uh, uh, I thought it was, he, it was smart the way he put it together. And uh, so I'm just going to share it with you. All right, so number one, I, the I for idols is items. Items. My stuff, my things are what give me value. That I, you know, I have that house and it's this size and it's got this kind of things in it and uh, it's furnished this way. I dress this way. My clothing is what gives me my value. The technology that I have because I have Apple and so I'm not a heathen that has uh, any of that other Android stuff. That's what gives me value. It's those kinds of things. I'm a real man because I drive a lifted truck and not a minivan, right? That's it's my hope. One day, Lord, please, I, I would love for that to take place. You see, someone whose idol is items is in a perpetual need for bigger and better. They will do whatever it takes to get it. They will work too much overtime. They'll step on the little guy. They don't care because their God is their stuff, right? They, they worship their things. D is duties, duties. What I do gives me my value. The stuff that I do gives me my value. I am my job. I am my career pursuit. I have this role, therefore I have value. I have this degree, therefore I have value. I have this spiritual gift, therefore I have value. My education, my title is everything in my life. It, my role or my title puts me higher on the ladder than those other people. And so my life is filled with that kind of stuff. These kind of people, typically their lives are filled with too many responsibilities. They just can't say no, so they're constantly taking on another thing because their role or their title is what gives them value. Oh, anyone offended yet? Don't wait, there's more. We got some more of these. Oh, others... 
Other people are what give you your value. You need that certain relationship. If I had that girlfriend or I had that boyfriend or if I was just married or if I just had kids or if that person just recognized me or if my boss just gave me that value at work or whatever it is, that person in your life is what gives you value. Their thoughts about you make you either emotionally really high or really low. Because this person has way too much place in your life. There's a deep need for recognition and acceptance from someone that you bend your life around them in an unhealthy way to the point to where they control you. That's, that's idolatry. Only Jesus gets that spot. Nobody else. Nobody else does. L, longing. Longing experiences or circumstances, that's what gives my life value. I've got to have that experience. I've got to go to that place. I've got to do that thing, and then life will be worth it. If only blank, then life would be complete. If only, if only this thing doesn't change, then I can't go on. Life can't continue on. They're, these people are never content they're never satisfied. Situations changing is where joy is found in their lives. They're always looking for somewhere else to go and satisfaction is always just out of reach. It's, if, if I just have this experience and then they have the experience and then what? There's another experience. There's another thing out there to chase because there's this longing within them that's not longing for Jesus. It's longing for a thing. Finally, S, suffering. My pain is what gives me value. My, my emotional or physical or spiritual hurt, it's way more than what happened to me. It's now who I am. It's where my identity has now found. They, these, these people are constantly pointing to themselves in a self-promoting way uh, in terms of their pain. It's not just the stuff that happened. It's, it's the, their value is placed on this. They, that somebody stabbed them in the back and they leave the knife in their back as a trophy and they, they pull it out and say, look how big this knife is. Isn't that terrible? It's, it's so terrible. Let me put it back in there real quick. And I'm gonna keep it there as a trophy because I wanna make sure everyone can see it. That there's this suffering becomes way more than just something that happened, something to work through. It becomes who I am. You see, when we identify our idol or idols, we make room or an excuse for them. That's what we, that's what we end up doing. We, we make room for them. And what God is calling us to do is make a grave for them. We don't make room for them in our lives. We don't make an excuse. Well, you know, if you just knew my situation, then you would know why this idol's okay. That's what the Philistines were saying. That's how the Israelites treated God. But the truth was they needed to destroy their idols and exalt the Lord. Why? Because that's where life is found. That's where all this other stuff, that's where things and duties and other people and the longing and even the suffering all can find its right place is submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. And maybe I didn't list your idol, but you know what it is. The Holy Spirit can be prompting you even right now. I don't, I don't need to say your thing in order for you to, to feel the conviction of the Lord. The thing that we do with this is that we repent or abandon those things and pursue the Lord. We destroy that and worship only God. We don't worship those things. So let's pray. All right, Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for today and just being able to see so clearly how idolatry is such a dangerous thing and how it costs so much. And God, we pray that you would reveal our idols to us, reveal the way that we tend toward other things and pursuits instead of you and give us the courage to destroy them and exalt you only. We pray together in Jesus' name.
Amen.